0: to the very first episode of PCL, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. I am one of your hosts, Brian. I am from the podcast Pop Culture Leftovers, and I'm joined by Jake from Pop Culture Leftovers. Hey, how's it going, guys? And Joe Stark from Starkcast Podcast. Welcome, Joe. Hey, stoked to be here. And Billy Blinks from The Reality Guys on YouTube. Welcome, Billy.
1: Hey, guys. Super psyched to be here.
0: Yes, uh, we're very excited to be doing this recap show of the Rings of Power. This is like a massive project for Prime Video. And, uh, yeah, we, I definitely, we are definitely going to be talking about like the big question from episode one, um, which is like, who is Meteor Man, and I'm not talking about Robert Townsend from that movie from the 90s. Um But we're actually going to, we're actually going to, it really ties in well with episode two. So, we're going to be tackling that in episode two. So, if you came to episode one to hear our discussion on that, stick around for episode two, which will be uploaded directly after this episode. But I really wanted to get into, uh, there's been a lot of infor- misinformation out there on like what this new Prime video series can do what it can't do and what it's based on, what it's not based on. And from the the best of my knowledge, I found out that it's it takes place in the second age of Middle Earth. The series follows new characters and ones that we've seen thousands of years later in Tolkien's trilogy. So, if you're watching this show and you're wanting to read something that will lay out what happens in this season and future seasons... It's not going to be that easy to find or maybe even predict. I mean, it, it's all kind of like laid out in the Lord of the Rings appendices, but that's all they have access to. It's it, it, the Prime Video doesn't have access. They don't have the rights to the Silmarillion or Unfinished Tales. They have the rights to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. So... I mean, it gives basically Prime Video the rights to the events laid out by Tolkien in the appendices for the first and second ages. So that's why I don't know if you're going to be able to find any like spoilers out there as far as, as what's going on in this series, because we are getting a lot of new characters and a lot of new stories here that don't really exist that they're basically taking liberties on fleshing out so i mean you can use the appendices as a template but it's being filled in a lot by the creators from this prime video show i don't know i i'll get into some of the quotes here from like the creators they had an interview with vulture that i thought was interesting but i don't know did you guys have any thoughts on this or
2: yeah, I mean, I can understand why people are confused. Honestly, I was a bit confused until, you know, the last minute thinking that obviously they would be drawing from the similarian since, you know, they haven't done that. And it's it's prequel type of stuff. So, yeah, I can understand why a lot of people are confused what they are drawing from in this series. Um, yeah, it's interesting that they're just going to make it up and just kind of use the appendixes and stuff from Return of the King to try to fill in the blanks here. I mean, I guess you know baseline from Lord of the Rings, like certain characters obviously can't die before the end of this series. But yeah, that's about it. They can they can honestly go in whatever direction the writers choose. Yeah,
1: I yeah. think what I think what's interesting is that like you said, Brian, Appendix B is the tale of years. So I mean that's gonna be obviously where they pull the most from, but I'm kind of interested to kind of get your guys' opinion on this, because obviously without them being able to use the Silmarillion, the fourth part of the Silmarillion is the downfall of Numenor, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a lot of Numenor in this show. So I'm interested, are they going to be able to show that, or is that going to have to technically be off screen? That's like a really cool and interesting balance. I'm looking forward to seeing like what they are allowed to show versus say.
3: Yeah, i I was really thinking this was gonna be a more heavily similar uh Silmarillion inspired going into this to the point where i I had bought a fresh copy of it already to mark up um but I mean that's okay if there's if they're just sticking to the the appendices that's cool too uh i i had i know the the writing team on this was feeling that they were gonna not directly contradict anything, and so that still gives them a lot of free reign to tell stories and and the way that they have to condense the timeline to to make it work for a narrative um, i'm 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 excited to see where they're going to go with it and and it makes sense that that's how they would be adapting this now at, having seen the first couple episodes
0: billy I, I mean they're able to in this they can't call i mean we we hear about the fall of morgoth but we they never mention him as melkor and melkor is part of like the silmarillion and so yeah. they're trying to find ways of like – but Morgoth is mentioned, I, I, I'm guessing, in the appendices for the, you know, the Lord of the Rings. So that's how they're able to get around it. I think they'll find ways of getting around this somehow. Maybe not – do you see what I'm saying? Maybe not
1: outright – Yeah, they're call- going to have to split hairs a little bit here. Yeah. You know, like I said, it's just interesting what they'll be able to show, like you said, versus say. And that's – like I said, it's going to be interesting and it's a cool – it's a storytelling challenge that I think hopefully they're up to tell and – You know, like I said, we'll hopefully hear everyone's thoughts on if we think they're kind of doing well so far.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the uh, the the creators of the show were talking with Vulture and um, they had to uh, they they were reading Tolkien's work and had to make deductions to understand the intricacies of everything that went on before the events of the trilogy. And they, they said, quote, Tolkien talked about not creating Middle Earth, but excavating it. We felt like we were discovering things that were already there. Um, people have heard about it in montages and flashes, but these are massive untold stories. And that was a quote from JD Payne, one of the co-creators. So, I mean, it's, it's all taken from like the timeline, but it's, it's, it's really filled in by these creators. They've, taken some liberties here and I guess we can talk about some of those liberties as we kind of break down the episodes but another question that I had for you guys is kind of like where you are with this series after two episodes I really only want to dive into the first one of course in this first episode but are, are you accepting this as something Lord of the Rings or are you kind of like looking at this as like you know like in in d c comics there are stories that aren't canon uh same thing with like you know the Marvel comics they have like their what if line and are you taking this more as like you know eh, this this isn't canon a hundred percent but and i'm I'll take it as like an else world story or like a, a what if story or like maybe fan fiction, or are you embracing this for what it is and And accepting it for what it is. I I personally, I'm accepting it for what it is. I think even, and I accept the Peter Jackson movies for what they are. They're not a 100% accurate to the movies. Because in the books, you know, the Shire is destroyed when everything's all said and done. And Peter Jackson, I think, gave us a better kind of story with the Shire still being intact and... You know, the hobbits being able to return home to their loved ones as opposed to the Shire being destroyed. So <laughs> what a bummer ending that would have been. <laughs> so it's like, I, I accept this for what it is. And I actually, the way that they've, the, the, the money that the amount of money that they've put on it into this and the way that they've made like, you know, the elven cities and, and everything look and, and, and filming in New Zealand, it looks so much like. What I remember from the Lord of the Rings and the Peter Jackson movies that I am almost almost kind of like trying to accept this as kind of like the prequel of Jackson's movies. Even though he's not involved in any way, um, I'm trying to accept this as much as I can as something that is canon within that Jackson world. I'm not... I think, I think they all have kind of taken liberties though in, in the storytelling, even Jackson himself. But I am accepting this on a certain level. So, I mean, it remains to be seen as, you know, they're, they're planning on five seasons as to whether if like, I'll get done with the whole series and be like, okay, let's watch this and then watch the movies. You know, I, so we'll see, we'll see if I ever get to that point where it's like, this is, so connected to the Jackson movies that I, I do accept it as part of it. But right now I, I am more so embracing this, but wanted to know what you guys thought, Joe.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely embracing this. It, it has such a feel to me that, that I'm back in middle earth. It's there's notable differences. Of course they had to use different music and, and all that. But after after watching this, it's, this is the feeling of the second age in middle earth to me and, and I'm digging it and man, their budget really, really shows through because so far to me, the, the CGI and especially when it's showing these wide shots of, of just the land in general and some of these different cities and, and castles and towers and stuff, it's just spectacular looking and I'm absolutely in and, we're we've met a lot of new characters so far and and they're kind of fitting into some of those archetypes that I expect to see in in a setting like Middle Earth and so for me this is it's fitting the bill and and I'm feeling it like it's a prequel as well and I feel much the same way and that I I love the Jackson trilogy and I understand what it is it's a, it's an adaptation it's not a word for word you know um replication of what you're seeing in the book and and neither is this it's it's they're telling a story that's in the spirit of Tolkien and it absolutely shines through and it's working for me
0: what do you think Jake
3: yeah I'm completely accepting of it as
2: well um you know this might be a hot take but I know other people agree with me I, I think Lord of the Rings is kind of perfect for movie and television adaptation because honestly I think if movies and TV do it right, they can end up being better than the books. I, I think the books like are very, very stuffy. Sometimes the narrative just comes to an absolute halt so we can tell a bunch of history. And it's just that kind of stuff doesn't work for TV. You have to keep it flowing. And I think um, both the Peter Jackson movies and this show have done a good job of having all that history there, you know, having the references. But keeping the story moving, keeping it exciting, not having just big pauses for exposition that you may not be ready for at the time. So yeah, I've I've completely em- embraced this, and I'm right there with you, Brian. Like as long as nothing like completely contradicts the the Peter Jackson movies, I can see myself watching five seasons of this as a warm up to watching the movies one more time. Like that is the way I would prefer this all to end up. But yeah, and, and I agree with Joe. Like man, like the the budget really shows it really paid off all the money they, they spent on this. It just looks absolutely gorgeous. And um, yeah, it very much felt like Lord of the Rings. It has just so many like familiar tropes that I'm used to in Lord of the Rings. And I don't mean like tropes isn't a bad thing. I just mean like things that are familiar to Lord of the Rings that make you feel welcome to this show. You know, you've got an elf human relationship. You've got, Elves not wanting to help men or not, not want to help the world. You've got a, a adventurous hobbit-like creature who, you know, whose curiosity may get the best of them. So just a lot of familiar themes and storylines that instantly made me, like, believe this is a Lord of the Rings universe. And yeah, I really like that.
0: Yeah, I think, like, one of the moments for me that really hit me hard, and I'm, we're going to dive into this, but now that you mentioned, you know, how this feels very much Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings, like... The Snow Troll and we get like the Bear McCreary music that like accompanies it. And it's just like it's just taking me back to like, you know, the moment where, you know, they're in the they're in Moria and they and they find the troll and you hear like this music and, you know, the battle's starting like the music changes. And I think Bear McCreary is doing a great job with the musical score to make it feel Close As close to those Jackson movies as possible with the musical score that they use there. Billy, what are you thinking, man?
1: I'm really glad to hear this is how you guys feel because I feel exactly the same way. I mean, I'm fully embracing this show. Even before the show, I was just psyched that there was going to be something that was putting so much time, money and effort into Tolkien's world. I really love the idea of being able to explore a different time in the history of Middle Earth. You know, obviously the Jackson films will take place in the third age. It's kind of the it's the world kind of on the latter end of its history. A lot of these things that we're going to be able to see in the show are in ruins or only mentioned in songs or tale or in, some are myth. And we're not even sure if those characters were real or not. We're going to probably come to find in the show that a lot are. It is really cool. And I love that quote from one of the creators about kind of ex- how Tolkien said about kind of excavating Middle Earth because – That's how I kind of felt about this show in general. I love the visual history. I love the grandness of it. I love that it is striking a balance of not dumbing too much down. I mean, some of the dialogue may, you know, if you only watch one time, may sometimes be a little tough to follow. But if you are people like ourselves and I'm sure plenty of the people listening, watching multiple times, there are a lot of wonderful and accurate references and things that really make you want to know more and will lead you into doing history research of middle earth and maybe going to look into some of these books. And what are the things that I got to be able to fill in for myself? And I mean, if you were talking about, how it sinks in with the Jackson stuff. I kind of agree with all of you right now. I'm totally seeing this as existing within the same universe and could totally lead into the Jackson trilogy. I mean, alone from just kind of some of the characters we meet right away to some of the familiar locations we go to right away, even just the production of the show itself. I mean, it was shot in New Zealand. I mean, as far as the visuals and everything like that, it's really hard to not go back and forth and strike that comparison with the Jackson film. So so far i really like it i mean even as far as we'll talk about episode one the structure i mean having a a kind of prologue scene early on again very akin to the jackson trilogy which is one of my favorite sets of films of all time uh so obviously anything that can kind of connect and make it feel like a synergist world is going to be really good for me so so far I, i i'm very accepting of the show
0: uh billy you brought up like the visual effects and i got this uh I got this from uh, Dark Horizons. They say the eight-episode first season utilized utilized approximately 20 visual effects studios and around 1,500 visual effects artists from around the world to pull off its visuals, including powerhouses like Industrial Light and Magic and Weta Effects, who were the first to sign on board. The, sh- the result is a show that boasts close to 9,500 effect shots. But more importantly, the CG is a high quality, is high quality enough to stand up to screening theatrically. VFX producer Ron Ames tells Variety, our target was the 65 inch screen at home, but we made it so that it would play technically beautifully in everything up to an IMAX screen. It is finished to theatrical resolution. Aim says the trick wasn't finding people who could do the job, it was finding the right houses and artists who could work together cohesively. In addition, they found a way that all assets could be shared and the studios could all talk to each other. Thus, everyone was working and pulling in the right direction. Uh, yeah, man. This is, uh, 9500 VFX shot throughout the series. This is, this is a huge, huge, I, this, I, this is, in my opinion, and I've, I've loved what they've done with the House of Dragons, but as far as VFX shots and just the way that this looks, um, and I'm not talking about story wise because th- I think the the shows are just so completely different. Mm-hmm. But as far as VFX and the budget and the way that it looks, like there is, I don't think I don't think I've seen anything on TV that can stand close to it. I mean, we can watch the. You know, seasons of The Mandalorian and, and be like, man, this, this feels like Star Wars. But as far as just like the, the look and the epic scale of this, I've never seen anything like this on TV. This does look, and Ames is 100% right. Like, this looks like a movie. Like when you, when I first saw, saw the, the shot of the, the snow troll, I was just like, holy shit, this looks movie quality. This is not like, you know, watching the CW. As far as like VFX, this is this is this is movie quality on our TV sets. It's it's unreal.
2: Yeah, they definitely got their money's worth. It's one thing to spend that much money, but it's another thing to have the results like this where, yeah, like House of Dragon looks great, but it looks like nothing compared to this like this. Wow. I I was just. I mean, I knew how much they spent. I knew it was probably going to look really good, but I was not prepared for how just amazing and cinematic this was going to look on my 65-inch TV.
3: Well, yeah, especially given how there were some shots in that first trailer they released that were rough, like specifically the the close-up shot of Galadro. And she's making that kind of all-points-off jump on the frozen waterfall and digging her dagger in on that it, it looked rough in the trailer but you see it in this and it's like god damn they were almost trolling us with that trailer i mean it just looked so good and that's something that i was specifically looking at and expecting it to to look wonky and man uh, uh, the the just the wide open panoramas on this like you really felt like those locations were real there wasn't that like cgi haze that can hang in the air that you see in some other stuff where you can tell that it's like, this is maybe half a location. You can clearly see where this stuff is digitally painted in there. And it just wasn't near as apparent apparent in this. It, it did feel like it'd be right at home on a big screen.
1: To me, I mean, obviously the visual effects are going to be the thing the most talked about. Obviously I need the cityscapes and stuff were breathtaking. I paused a few times just to kind of take a close look and kind of zoom in. And it was, Obviously incredible, but one of the things I always kind of like to highlight, and it even goes back to Jackson's trilogy, and I'm glad they're kind of keeping this tradition, is the costume design is impeccable. Just You could tell everything is handmade, hand-stitched, hand-woven. I'm sure they have under shirts and under things that we can't even see that are all stitched and hand custom made that are specific to the races and it's just that a level of immersion i think really is what is going to allow those actors to really give the performances and make us believe that they are these characters but like i said i just always want to make sure we highlight that costume design because it's like me is always the best any lord of the rings
0: i'm telling you it's like Jeff Bezos is like John Hammond in Jurassic Park, spared no expense for the series. <laughs> I'm telling you. I've never seen anything this gorgeous. Yeah, and the costume design is incredible. Like, you know, I this has definitely got to be in contention for some Emmys as far as like costume design and VFX. It's if not winning. So it's well, it's go ahead.
2: I, I showed you guys this morning that Bubba Fett Won the Emmy this year for outstanding effects in a television show. And can you imagine a year <laughs> where Bubba Fett and Rings of Power exist, where Bubba Fett would beat Rings of Power out? Like, that's the most laughable shit I've ever fucking heard.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, I mean, it truly did usher in a new age in visual effects. I mean, just wow. Yeah. The
3: volume has its place, but this is clearly beyond that. I mean, it, it looks so much better then because there's shots in the Mandalorian where you, you it's it's hard to tell like is this is this an actual set is this the volume and there's other shots where you can very much tell but with this everything was seamlessly blended and you
2: know what else is sometimes when you focus that much on visual effects and you spend that much money it can be like a crutch on direction and cinematography and I thought this completely avoided that as well like not only are the effects impeccable but there was still a lot of imagination and interesting stuff done with the cinematography and storyboarding and direction it wasn't just like look at this effect like I thought it was even more than great effects like the usage of the camera and the cinematography with a lot of this stuff was was very brilliant
0: I think that's what a lot of people think the downfall of, of movies like, you know, uh, Phantom Menace and Avatar is, is that mm-hmm. it's, it's really a main focus on like, look, they're flexing their VFX muscle and not really putting much into like the story. So, yeah, yeah there's
2: VFX and movement and interesting movement at that in this. It's very impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess we can, um, I mean, I guess we can get into the breakdown of the episode. I guess we can kind of share our thoughts on what we thought of the episode at the end, but I do want to, I do want to break this down. We're going to start off with the storyline of, uh, Galadriel. And I mean, we're in Valinor, which, as far as I know, we never got to see Valinor. In, in any of the Lord of the Rings movies with Peter Jackson, it was only mentioned and and that they were going to. That's that's basically where, you know, the uh, the elves and Gandalf and Frodo and Bilbo all sail to at the end of the Return of the King. But like we get to see a fully realized Valinor here and it's beautiful.
2: Awesome. Yeah, gorgeous. Why would you want to leave?
3: But shockingly, bullying still exists in Valinor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, some heaven.
1: It was a really nice boat. It was a
0: nice boat. And we get a lot of we get a lot of story here about, you know, um where where they kind of like where the uh where the elves are now. We get a, we we get to meet uh Galadriel as a child, we get to we get to meet her brother Finrod. we, we I mean we find out a lot here that uh, Morgoth sends his army to do battle in Middle Earth, and Finrod and the elves leave Valinor on ships and to battle Sauron and the the army of Morgoth. And I mean, the the epic scale of that battle looked incredible. I mean, the the battle just looked amazing, and you could kind of see that, you know, even though they won, you could see that there was a lot of death on the elf side. And um, I mean, we got to see how many dragons were in that shot for crying out loud! I i. I couldn't count how many dragons there were. We got to see two battling each other, but like off in the distance, you see more dragons. You even see an eagle going down. It was incredible. Which the scale really cool of it see-
3: was just... Yeah, the scale of it was wild. And them saying that it left like the whole of Middle-earth in ruin. Like This war was just something... I mean the likes of the, the Middle Earth's gonna see some wars in the future that are huge and terrible, but nothing in comparison to this first battle against Morgoth and just the scale of elves, the scale of lives that were lost, that pile of helmets, I mean that's just an incalculable loss in in a in a you know, a, a race like that that counts their lives in centuries. And man, I could just really feel the the depth of that. And and to do an exposition dump like that along with you know this series of all this it's they can do it well in some stuff and they can do it really poorly in others and i felt like it was done really well in this because it was such engaging imagery and just i mean what a horrible story for these elves to go from paradise and have to sail across the sundering sea and then just enter hell on middle earth really Mm mm-hmm
2: I thought Galadriel's narration during this was really powerful too about not having a word for death and then by the end of this having learned many words for death and it really like sold the story of like what they went through coming to Middle-earth to uh battle Morgoth.
1: What do no, you... I I, no, agree. But... I mean I was going to say literally just the point like you see the eagles we've never in any kind of lord of the rings tale that we've ever seen on screen especially and that most people have ever read the eagles are kind of the mock; ex machina they come in no matter what and they're going to win the day for you so to see the eagles even being taken down is a crazy visual that we've never seen which kind of kind of sets the stage for you where we stand i mean we know that
0: many many years w- w- would you think like a thousand years have passed since this battle, when we see Galadriel as as an adult again and going out there, and still, how, how many years do we know? Not it's really.
2: They, they less that, than a thousand, but over a hundred is the information they give us, right?
3: Yeah, well, they said that the battle lasted for centuries, and then the hunt afterwards lasted for centuries. So they're they're definitely counting it, you know, in centuries. They're not saying so. I, I think it would be. You know, definitely less than a thousand, maybe even less than two thousand, somewhere in there. When do you start counting in
0: eons instead of centuries? It's so, but it's such a such a long passage of time that like most people, you know, haven't felt the presence of that evil, and so it's it's almost like they just want to believe that Sauron's gone and like we don't have to worry about it anymore. But I mean, years and years and years and years is basically a blink. To them, I mean, they're immortal. They live forever. They can live forever while they're in Valinor. So it's like, wouldn't those? Even it just feels like that the that the wounds are still fresh, and like there's like this there's this um like Galadriel is driven by the vow that she made after Finrod was killed in the battle of you know going after Sauron. I. I, I would still feel like there would be some other elves that would still feel that way, too. They lost their, you know, they they lost their husbands. They lost their fathers in this battle. And so it has to have been such a long passage of time for the other elves to kind of just like what basically just want to wash their hands clean of this and move on and just live their live their lives End this. Right. Oh, yeah,
3: Uh, because. Thunder says to Galadriel that maybe all the other commanders are right. And meaning to say all the other commanders had come to the conclusion that the evil's gone. It's been too long since we've seen another living orc even.
0: But you got to imagine that like some of these some of these elves were involved in the battle. And I, it's just hard for me to believe that nobody else feels this way other than Galadriel. It's a little bit of self, uh, selfishness,
2: right? I, I think the the elves are just a little bit sick of it all at this point. Like, they don't see the gain for them. And I, I think a lot more of them remember than Galadriel, but they're just done with it. And they're, they're just washing their hands with it and want to go back. I I really got that from Thondir.
1: Hmm. No, I, I agree. I really do think it's the devastation of that loss of paradise. They, they've gone in such an eternal existence of... Everything being grace and being peaceful. And like you said the horrors of that battle. And like you said Jake really put it really well of like how they didn't even have a word for death before all of this. So there is a level of uh, kind of maybe putting your head in the sand type of thing or just kind of not wanting to believe that it's not over yet and that it could start again. And for the elves you know even centuries isn't that long so for them it you know for us it may seem like wow this has been this such a long time but for some of them it really is a a blink of an eye so it's it's very curious to see and i'm really looking forward that's a big part of i want to kind of see like the divide of those who kind of notice and just believe there is something really going on versus those who just want to to the last very second believe that everything is fine
0: Yeah, maybe, you know, even in the real world, like something devastating will happen, like everyone will be affected in some way or some, you know, and somehow and, but we all do want to eventually live our lives normal and move on. And it just feels like Galadriel has had something so devastating happen, like with her brother. I mean, he's got a mark on him from this and she makes the vow that You know, she says his vow became mine. And so I think that that powerful speech that he gave her at the beginning of this episode and and for her to trust herself, I think like that's what's kind of like carrying her forward is like the memory of her brother and taking on his vow. Nothing's going to stop that.
2: I agree. Until she knows 100% that that evil is gone, she can't shake that vow that she made to her brother. It's just not going to happen, and I I don't think a lot of the other elves have that burden. Uh, Surely there's another character along the way that will also be in Galadriel's mindset, but we've we've really yet to see it
0: Mm -hmm. as of now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we do we do a a huge like a pretty big time jump with with Galadriel and we're seeing her all grown up now and and um our main our main villain seems to be like how much it seems to like it's going to be Sauron but like how much of Sauron do you think that we're actually going to see in this series especially even in this first season? I think we will definitely eventually see
3: whatever guys that he's coming before mm-hmm. them in. Uh, I don't think he's going to be looking scary. I think he's going to be coming in his, his fair guys, where they don't look and see something scary. They see something that is, you know, a, a beautiful person and he's going to be manipulative. And so yeah, I think.
1: What, good- yeah, Anatar.
3: Yes. And, and And I think we're definitely going to see that in this first season.
0: I do agree with that 100% I do agree with that Mm -hmm. Um We keep hearing about like This poison You know This 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 poison that's out there And um we see it multiple times and i'm kind of jumping ahead here but like we see you know there's a leaf that's overturned by Gilgalad the king that had the poison on it um and if you read the subtitles when the, you see like black speech whispers you know and then we, we later on uh, we see a cow that's milked and it's got like this black poison that's released from the sick cow and and um the origin of this poison? Are we just to believe that it is being something something that's being spread by the orcs? Could it be? I w- I kept thinking maybe like the poison was originated from. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correct. Ungoliant, the original spider, you know, Shelob's mother.
1: But isn't that still Marillion technically? So are they allowed to include her? Ungoliant are they allowed to include her? This prob-
0: if if it's in the Silmarillion probably not. I mean probably not. And they might just call they just might refer to uh it as a spider or a creature or something like that or even possibly renaming it if they are going to go that route. Um that was just one of my theories, but I do think it's just something that some kind of magic, some kind of poison that's been made made up by sauron and the and the orcs absolutely
3: because when we get um a talking with the watch commander and they're atop that tower and they're looking at that green beautiful valley and they're saying remember this was once all blighted stone and that was the last time the evil was there and now the evil is coming back it's bringing its blight upon the land with it
1: hmm yeah and in the books especially Sauron and they don't really emphasize this really in the in the Jackson trilogy obviously it's kind of a different kind of Of circumstances but sauron was really like a wizard he did a lot of experimentation a lot of the stuff where you see later on with the ring wraiths and kind of if you put the rings on ending up in the what they would call the seen versus the unseen lands and that was a big part of like what sauron really was into so even we do kind of later on do kind of start to see you know with that one blade and things of that nature that come up so I, i do think it definitely is showing the presence of sauron kind of starting to mess with his experimentations again or try to build some power he didn't have before, which are maybe some allusions to things we come to see later on. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, the uh, Galadriel at the icy
0: mountain. Is that uh Is that the mountain? Do we know what mountain this is?
3: Yeah, that's the name of that that stronghold that they're in.
0: OK. And they come across this room... Where there was like this dark magic at play at one time and there's dead orcs in the room. Do you think like this is like early Eric experimentation of like where they were trying to possibly create the one ring or they were trying to? Because we see like this, we see like this anvil. It's still hot. She pours water on it and it reveals the same symbol that she saw carved into her brother's dead body. What were they what was going on here? What kind of like dark magic was going on here? Were they trying to create the one ring and just couldn't do couldn't do it here? They couldn't do it alone.
1: So I don't think this specifically has to do with the rings. I think that kind of is a play that comes Into later when Sauron starts to have a relationship with Celebrimbor and kind of where Celebrimbor's plans exist and he kind of plays off of that. I think it more so leans again to when I kind of alluded to the stuff about the blade and Sauron, at least when you kind of go into the research about him in the books, about like the seen versus unseen land. So trying to kind of pull things in from other worlds and kind of that sorcery aspect and you kind of get a little bit of that even in the hobbit films with jackson when he's in that kind of form and he's a necromancer so i i kind of think it leans more towards that but again um the show can obviously take liberties if they want to streamline and maybe make it more jewel crafting i'd be interested to hear what you guys think
2: i i agree with billy i, I don't think it's quite anything to do with the one ring yet as far as I thought I thought the creation of the One Ring would be in a direct response to what was going on with the Elrond storyline a little bit later in the series. So I'm not quite sure what kind of dark magic they were up to in here.
3: I think whatever it was, it was something to increase his power because he, at this point he's on the run, he doesn't have very many orcs with him, and so he's going to be doing some experimentations to try and broaden his power base again. And I can only imagine what it would be with. Ending up with living creatures like pushed into the wall and then turned to stone, uh, some sort of dark arts, right? Where he's like pulling out life forces and doing something with it, and it's it definitely they they showed you enough to just give you a terrifying glimpse and let your imagination do the rest. I thought it was really well handled.
0: Yeah, I I just didn't know exactly kind of like what was. What was at play here? Like, what kind of dark magic was this? And, you know, I mean, we know that the the ring and, and the, 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 the the rings are going to be created later. I just didn't know if, like, this was, like, a test run. Like, they were trying to see if they could do it themselves, and clearly they can't. And many orcs were, died along the way. I, I just really didn't know what else was at play here. So, um, it's interesting, though, that, you know, inside inside like this inside these you know uh, rooms these 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 caverns that no heat is coming off the torch yet this anvil is still warm so there was definitely some sort of powerful magic going on here
2: maybe he was powering up the sigils like cuz i mean a lot of that comes into play later and there's one there maybe he was like spreading his watch like spreading what he was able to
1: observe it seems like they're kind of doing this type of, you know, if you were to do like a Harry Potter reference, almost like a Dark Mark type of thing, where it's it maybe they were even old fortresses or any kind of old locations or parts that he is kind of established over time coming active, but it, they're they're obviously making a big emphasis on this mark, and you know looked into the different theories about that, but it, it is interesting how much of an emphasis, for, especially in the pilot, so I, obviously is going to be something I think pretty prevalent throughout the series. Yeah, you know, we get the we get the battle with the snow troll, which looked amazing.
0: I just it was kind of like all the other elves were pretty much useless except for Galadriel here.
3: <laughs> it's like she's the only one with fight left in her. <laughs>
2: yeah, with the loyalty. I like the blood. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. The the blood splattering the camera effect. Sometimes I I roll my eyes when I see that and stuff, but I thought it was really well done here.
0: So now we've got, like, the, the elves are basically saying, like, hey, we're done. <laughs> we're done. Bunch of wet blankets, these elves. <laughs> we're <laughs> no done. Kidding. Well, they, they're ready to call it. I mean, you know, they got as far as they wanted to go. They went farther than they ever wanted to go. They're ready to call it. And they and, uh, as far as they're concerned, they're in defiance of the king now. And they need <laughs> to head back. So um,
2: The elves are like us, like, four hours into an episode of PCL. <laughs> They've gone further than they want. They're just fucking
0: done. And so we get. Um, we're, now we're back at uh, not not back at we're at uh, Linden which is the capital of the High Elves, and we get introduced to young Elrond, who is the herald of the Elf King Galad, and he's basically told you're not going to be able to go to this fucking council meeting because because you he, he's half elf, correct? yes yeah and so it feels like it's like all the high elves are going to be able to go and he is not they he's not considered one of them at this point which is crazy because like by the time we get to fellowship of the ring like he is like the man you know uh when we get the fellowship
1: he's like i'll show you a
0: council
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was hard not to think of the peter jackson movies during this scene and it's like yeah elrond's gonna he'll get his he'll be able to go to these meetings <laughs> <laughs>
1: To be fair, when you them. read the books, like the Council of Elrond is such a long and meaty chapter. It's it's probably as long as the appendices that like a lot of the series that they give you for this is like in length. It's it's crazy how much so Elrond definitely gets his due for his made up council. Well,
3: El- I, I like that it sets up this possible you know, desire in Elrond to be included for that, which could be translated down to something as a desire for power, so that even though he is a, a a good and noble character, if Sauron is coming in as this deceiver, he needs to have those sort of traits that he can play on to manipulate people into his way. And so I thought that that was a pretty good touch, them adding it in that it's like, hey, you're part of
0: this, but you're not fully part of this. Mm hmm. And I feel like, okay, so Galadriel shows back up, and I feel like Elrond is really kind of, like, pulled in a couple different directions here, because, like, he does have, like, this close relationship with the king, and of course he wants to stay in his good graces, but he also wants to make sure that he listens and hears out his friend, and it's... I think he's like in a really, he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place right now. I, I really feel like that. Like, I feel like he does think he's doing the right thing as far as, um, you know, her not going back out there. He, I think he does believe that the evil has been vanquished, that it's gone, that Sauron is gone, not coming back. But I also feel like he knows how driven she is and that the only way that he's going to be able to see Galadriel off to Valinor is if he doesn't tell her that this ceremony at the very end of it, that she's going to be asked to be shipped off to Valinor. I feel like he knows that's coming because there's a, there's like a look between them two. Like Galadriel, like as soon as King, uh, at this, at this ceremony, as soon as the King, uh, Galad looks at um, Galadriel is basically like, you know, you've been given passage to Valinor because of like, you know, the, the, the works that you have done and, and, um, the years that you have spent, uh, you know, you know, seeking out this great evil that, that doesn't exist anymore. That she immediately shoots a look over to Elrond, like, you knew about this. <laughs> you knew that he was going to basically, he, she knew about the ceremony thanking you know her and the other elves for their service i mean he even elrond even wrote the speech he's like mumbling he's like wording the speech out as the king's giving it there's no way that he also <laughs> yeah. didn't know that galad was gonna be like hey we're also going to grant you a boat you know and passage to to valinar and and maybe elrond was trying to trick himself that maybe this is what she wants she wants to go back to valinar you know So unless that's the thing that was discussed in the meeting that he
3: wasn't allowed to be part of. That's true. Now we're going to discuss Valinor business. Uh, You know, this is for highest members only when we talk about, you know, sending a ship to the, the Grey Havens.
2: I kind of fall into what Brian's saying, because I I think that's why Elrond kind of makes that deal with Galadriel in the Mm -hmm. first place, is he knows this is coming. He wants to make sure she gets on that boat. So, you know, he vows to kind of take up the quest for her as the only thing he can think of to get her to get on this boat.
0: I think the meeting was with him and the Elvin Smiths. You know, Caliburn Boar and the Elvin Smith. Like, oh,
3: that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, And it does, it makes it a lot meatier character development if he was hiding that behind.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, because
3: that's definitely the thing that Elrond didn't know about
2: until he was directly told. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so. I, you know, and I, she gets away from all this and talks with Elrond personally, and I, I really kind of I really felt for her here because she's like, even if I go to Valinor, you know, if the evil still exists, it could poison Valinor. And even though I'm hearing all these songs, my heart will be pulled to, you know, the vow that I gave my brother and the evil that's still here in Middle Earth that hasn't, that I don't believe has been taken care of. And so...
1: but she I would that Valnor isn't safe if she goes there and goes off to the undying lands and, and hangs around. Eventually, if she's right, they're not going to be safe either. It's mm-hmm. going to be the same thing they dealt with in the first age. So she doesn't want to sit there and just wait for it to come happen to them.
0: I was shocked that Elrond was able to convince her to get on the fucking ship. I mean, I was blown away. And I don't know how he got her on. I think it maybe was him saying, like, listen, don't worry about it. I got this. If yeah, I, that it,
2: was that was the thing I think.
0: Yeah, like if I sense any evil, I will hunt it down personally myself. You've done this long enough; your battle is over. And and so I mean, I, it was it was just shocking to me to see her actually take him up on that. But Ooh. go ahead.
1: For- for her to go, Brian, right? like you're saying, that's actually a really good point now. I'm thinking about it. Does that mean the this, this show's going to make Elrond a badass then, right? If she's willing to get on the boat and be like, oh, he can take care of it, then she's saying that he's equal or even greater than her and being able to go take care of it. So I'm actually actually really looking forward for them to unleash him at some point, hopefully. I mean, we know that he's
0: involved in like uh, the battle against Sauron. Yep. You know, he's mm-hmm. there, so he is a badass in his own right. Mm-hmm. Um I think it was just oh man I think it was I think it was just a sincere kind of like plea from one friend to another and I sh- I think she's being pulled in two different directions like and it it's not until she hears like that inner it's not until she like remembers that speech that her brother gave her like you know to li- basically listen to I'm paraphrasing basically like trust yourself listen to yourself listen to your instincts you know um basically follow the light of your own heart that she fucking jumps off the ship, right? Yes. Yes. I love the way that that was presented
3: narratively because the first time watching this, I I put it in my notes right away like w- what what is her brother whispering to her and when they brought that back at the end, I was like, "Oh, what what perfect way to to introduce that back into the story and close mm. that loop." Yeah.
1: I'll be honest with anyone else's first per- other reaction after that, Joe was, How the hell is she getting all the way back there? <laughs> a long
0: I thought that yeah. too. I was like, How, like, sh- there's nothing there. There's nothing. She's like stranded out in the water. It was scary to see that, <laughs> like, that really wide shot of that much water
2: and her tiny little figure in the middle of that shot. I, it, mm-hmm. Wow. It made me claustrophobic.
3: Hmm. especially knowing what sort of monsters are in the sundering sea right yeah yeah Yeah. i did know like you you knew she was not staying on that boat
2: like i didn't know the circumstance or what would be like the key narrative to eventually get her to change her mind but i never had a had a doubt that (laughs) she wasn't going to change her mind
0: oh never for a split second it's not like i'm thinking to myself (laughs) oh she's gonna join in on this elvis chorus and then go into the light and that's gonna be it so no
2: yeah and i'm not even (laughs) saying that as a negative for the show I, i think the writers are smart enough to know the audience is not buying into that's what she's gonna do and but yeah i thought i thought it was still very powerful when she decided to go ahead and jump
0: yeah yeah let's talk about this project um that uh uh that Elrond's going to be a part of, uh, unbeknownst to him. Uh, Gilgalad uh has a, a meeting with Elrond and um, Calabrimbor is brought in. He's the greatest of the Elvin Smiths and he wants him and Calabrimbor to start a project. He's going to oversee the project and it's, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, at this moment when we're seeing Kala brought in, you know, showing up smiling and and we're just like, OK, this is this is where we're going to get the creation of the Rings of Power. Like this is where that's going to happen.
3: Absolutely. This is the beginning of that thread that's going to lead there.
2: Yeah, totally. I've been so nervous to say the name Calabrimbor for the last 24 hours. I'm like, this is definitely the most difficult named character.
1: (laughs) I think we got lucky. Anybody, he was also kind of one of the main characters in that Shadow of War. There's a couple of games that came out in the last five, six years. um, And he was one of the main characters and revolved around kind of the rings and things like that. So it was really cool to see another interpretation of him interested how similar the one from the game will be. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the game, so.
2: He's got to be very old, too, right? For an elf to show as much age as calibrimbor shows, like, wow, he's got to be up there,
3: right? Oh, for sure. He, he He remembers the world
0: before the first light. So let's jump they, in. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to jump on to the next thing. If you have something to elaborate on this, please, by all means, go ahead.
1: So so I just do know that just like in kind of doing a little bit of the research with Kelly Brimbor, they did say he was part of, excuse me, I'm saying this wrong, but the Neuron, which is a group of elves, was like the second group of elves to even come over to Middle Earth. So, yeah, he's definitely got to be really up there as far as hierarchy and age of those out in Middle Earth.
2: Hmm.
0: So he wasn't quite there for like the creation of Valinor, but he's been around for a long time.
1: I would think so. I mean, again, no, we can do more research as we go into as they start to kind of unveil more elf lore and what they as far as for this storyline and this interpretation, what they kind of deem appropriate or deem kind of what they want us as an audience to dive into. But that's at least a little bit of stuff when I did a little bit of Celebrim board digging. Okay.
0: Let's show, I want to talk about the Harfoot snacks. We'll get into like everything Harfoots. And uh does this take place? Do we first see them in Rovanion? Yes. That's where the two men, we see the two men, the hunters with the walking around with the big giant moose antlers. What is the purpose of those big giant antlers? Is that to to look Like if someone were to see them far off to make them look bigger than they actually are or to or to have them blend in with whatever they're hunting.
3: I was wondering that as well, because the way they were moving, it almost looked like it was growing out of their backs. And I'm like, are these some sort of weird ass creatures we've just never heard of before? Are these humans that just have these as packs? Yeah. Is, is it self-defense purpose? It
0: definitely yeah uh, piques the imagination. I kept thinking, like, could they pull on something and have like this shield them and they use it as a shield from like arrows or something like that. But I was also thinking, like, maybe they're hunting these antlers or whatever they're hunting. So they, they, they can kind of like in a field, all you see is those antlers and they might come off looking like whatever they're trying to hunt that way they can get closer oh, great to whatever they're trying to hunt kind of like a camouflage to kind of like blend in you know
3: yeah like a wolf in sheep's clothing yeah kind of
0: deal. yeah
1: i i like all of your guys' ideas a lot better i kind of just took it as maybe they had just like come back from a hunt and that's just kind of like what they were carrying back with them but i kind of like your ideas a lot better didn't
2: they show the antlers like on the picture when they were deciding what kind of person they saw though when the harfoots were like looking at that that picture
0: well it might be kind of something that breaks down different classes of people and it might be like oh oh, that's like that's like what a typical hunter looks like you know uh so these these might be hunters that way or you know as opposed to maybe that's
2: just a normal hunter garb in that area
0: yeah yeah and that was just like a glyph reading hunter in their book or whatever yeah exactly yeah and this is where we and and it's it's funny that like they know well one of them knows that it could be harfoots and they they believe that the harfoots are dangerous creatures and it's like you know from what we've seen of the harfoots they seem very kind of like they want to kind of like be to themselves they almost want to be like they don't want to be known by you know big folk and shit like that they just want to be very kind of like Tucked away in their own little world, kind of like you know hobbits in the shire, like these are just a different breed of halflings and and um they're a, the, the, I believe that they eventually will once we get to like the third age will kind of like blend into like the the halflings that we see in the shire because originally there were the harfoots, the stores, and the Falahides, and um I believe that the stores were like river hobbits. So, like, Smeagol, you know, Gollum, when we first meet him, was originally a store. And, like, the Follahides were hunters. They were a bit taller than the other halflings. And um, they were very, they were friendly with the elves. They were cousins. They were considered cousins of the elves. And then we've got the Harfoots here. So, um, definitely halflings. And so, like, these are, these are definitely, like, hobbit-like creatures that we're being introduced to. I love their
3: musical cue, also. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: They just got... I just want to... I I just wish I could introduce them to Conditioner. Their hair. (laughs) Oh,
3: I know, right? Like, with the acorns and the leaves and stuff twisted in there. It's like, how are you not little itchy guys all day? I know. I know. It's like, it's cool to be nomadic people, but... (laughs) wash your clothes (laughs) have some (laughs) dignity
1: (laughs) i would love for them to throughout this series have these because obviously rovanians like very far from where the shire is but it would be really cool if like over the events of this series, if they're kind of kind of purporting them to be the maybe direct kind of ancestors of the hobbits that eventually they find the shire and they're like man this is really nice there's none of that other bullshit we just dealt with. We're just going to stay in these little hills. This is cool. Like, that would be nice. Like, I'd like that for them. Maybe that's where they do finally get their conditioner, because we've seen the Hobbits. The Hobbits <laughs> have pretty nice and pretty good, well-put-together hair, so...
0: The Bag End was very chic.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
0: I, I will say in this first episode, as far as characters were concerned, my two favorites in the first episode were Nori and Poppy. Um... I, yeah, I, I, Nori,
2: Nori was definitely the most likable character in that first hour, 100%.
0: I just liked following those two characters in this first episode, Nori and Poppy. So, and Man, I, they're so innocent. But mm. <laughs> I would say that Nori's still innocent. She's just got an adventurous kind of streak, a rebellious streak, right?
3: Oh, exactly! In the sort of rebellion that she gets up to, they're sneaking into a forbidden garden to steal berries. But then, as soon as she sees a threat, she nobly leaves the leads
1: the children away. Was that a was that a worg? I think it was a werewolf. It's definitely again. I think I think we'll see kind of predecessors to a lot of the things that we've we're kind of used to seeing so but i think i think for all intents and purposes brian i think it's a ward they called it a wolf but it, it did look like very much like a ward right yeah yes nasty looking the face was was scary a lot <laughs> scarier than the, a dog face that we're used to seeing <laughs> well I, I know sauron
3: one of his powers was uh like communing with werewolves and using them as um you know weapons of war
1: that's really cool.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I I, I just I kind of loved I loved our introduction to the Harfoots here, and I mean I don't think we got too much of them, and I'm actually kind of ready to move on to the Southlands and talk about the men. But did you guys have any other thoughts about like our first introduction to the Harfoots?
3: I I did love that that elder that was with them, um, Sadak uh, Sadak Sadak Burrows. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I loved that he immediately sees this as an omen that the hunters are there early, but then he passes it off. And then later he's super concerned. He's like, these guys are not right at all. This is very freaky. I, I just like that even though they are a very simple folk and not very many people know about them, they still have ways about the world and, and they, they understand the world around them in that he knows that there's something great that is about to happen. He's seeing the signs of it. And I, and I like that this, these people, these Harfoots, have that wisdom about them.
2: I like that scene a lot. It really reminded me of Sam eavesdropping on Gandalf when we saw Nori eavesdropping on on Sardoc.
0: Yes, <laughs> it's great. I think Sardoc is like—I've never. I, have we ever encountered a halfling like this before? I mean, no. I yeah, somebody who's got like this this book and all this stuff laid out. I feel like. All the halflings that I've seen like in the Shire, except for like Bilbo, have been very much kind of like, you know, of the land and, you know, just Sadak just seems so different than any other halfling I've seen in, in the Lord of the Rings. I, I, I think it's very interesting. I think he's a very interesting character. I want to know a lot more about him. Then it would make sense that a nomadic
3: society that's constantly on the move and is following these deep oral traditions would have somebody like that among them. Whereas by the time they get to the Shire point in the, in the future, they're far more of an agrarian society that's settled down and maybe doesn't really have a need for that. Especially when it seems like they've gotten even more insular by the time they're in the Shire and really still as a people look down on adventures.
0: Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they very much do, like down to the point, <laughs> down to the point where Frodo is just scowled at. Gandalf is scowled at when he comes into town. I mean, so. sure. <laughs> the stink
1: face that Gandalf gets is one of the low-key best scenes in Fellowship. Just the stink face that that guy gets.
0: Oh, I know, I know. It's so good. Um, yeah, let's jump into the Southlands. Uh, this is uh, the land of men, and we're introduced to. Elves that are that have been watching over this land for 79 years now. And um and the men here, I, it's are they are they looking for are they looking for this this evil to pop up against Sauron and the orcs? Or are they just keeping tabs on these same men that fought against them a thousand years ago? Um I think when, it's the
2: latter. I do, too. They definitely verbally talk about that, like, that within them, they still have the power to do what they did. They're still descendants of those previous assholes, so you never know.
0: Is that a good way to look at
2: people,
1: though? No.
2: No, that's shitty elf, like, putting their noses up and thinking themselves better than everyone else, more noble than anyone else.
0: How would you feel if, like, you know— Hundreds of years ago, like somebody had done something and and your family was still looked at as, you know, like, hey, we we weren't even involved in that, you know, and but you still have like people policing outside of your house every day, like just waiting for you to do something evil. Like it's super, it's super fucked up. Still yeah, it's being very, judged very on something yeah. that your family
3: members did a thousand years ago. Yeah. You know, you really feel that that young angry guy you understand when he jumps up and he's like, you know, it was a thousand years ago. We're not those people anymore. Just get the fuck out of here.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a big folly of the elves in Tolkien's world. I mean, again, we get to kind of see the fruits of that in the Lord of the Rings, because the only ones who are really all intents and purposes left are Elrond and Galadriel. Yeah. And they're the ones that have this great sense of remorse. And they, they talk about like all their father, fo- things they could have taken care of and the things they should have done. And it's just at the time then they're more worried about blaming, you know, participants on the other side of a war other than blaming kind of their own follies and things that led to their own, you know, kind of the failures that they had. So it's it's a very elvish trait for them to be kind of looking to punish outward than look inward. We're introduced
0: to speaking of elves, we're introduced to Aaron Deer who walks into this human bar and as soon as he walks in. They kind of all shut up, but not soon enough because he overhears one of the men talking about poison and he starts to question them and, you know, he, he hears the the poisons, you know, it came from somewhere in the East. There's this poison and that's when the guy calls him knife ears and tells him to like lay off basically and just let it, yeah, just let it go. And, um, and, uh. Yeah, he also uh, mentions their
2: true king during this exact same scene too. I thought that was that was interesting.
0: I don't think that he's speaking directly about Aragon there. I don't think that that's who he's talking about. No, because Gondor is not even a thing. Yet. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I took that more towards like maybe like a, a, a Morgoth kind of Sauron type of thing. To be honest, I, that's really where my my brain went. The same here is like,
3: are there still contingents among these people, despite what Bronwyn wants to think that 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 is their true king is is Sauron or Morgoth before Mm
0: him? Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, I was wondering if a character introduced in episode two is the character being talked about here.
0: We will get to that in episode two. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to that. I, I want to strictly stick with episode one here because I do have thoughts on that when we get to episode two. Um, yeah, but we are introduced to, uh, out by the well. Um, well, actually we see her in the bar. She does leave, but Bronwyn. What do you guys think about this whole kind of like, flirtation uh forbidden romance between uh the human Bronwyn and uh the elf era uh Erendir I think
3: Erendir is setting himself up for heartbreak
1: yeah, it doesn't really go well for the, the elf human pairings in Tolkien's world. I mean, we kinda obviously are familiar with Aragorn and Arwen, who will probably end up being the most successful ever, but you know, they also have like the Baron Luthian stuff and there is the two or Eldrill stuff as well. So I mean there has but they never end well. The ones before, and I'm assuming this one probably isn't going to go real well, and I'm sure that probably informs why Elrond isn't a super fan of his daughter being involved in the relationship that she ends up being involved in. He probably has kind of an informed opinion.
0: Bronwyn, we find out has a son named Theo who uh, has been hearing what he says is mice underneath the floorboards. And uh, we don't know who his father is. He's got like this missing father. Did he die? Did he just leave? Who is his father? We've got that question kind of like lingering. Um, But he's, one of the, one of the guys from the town go with him into like this barn and underneath a loose floorboard. I think he called it a lucky floorboard that he stepped on. He find there's like a box under there. He opens it up and what looks like is like a broken off sword hilt. It's just like the leftover uh, hilt of a sword. And it looks like it has something like the eye of Sauron on it. And so I'm believing that this is probably Sauron's sword that he used in that battle uh against the elves
3: oh absolutely that makes, that makes
2: a lot of sense i also thought it was very similar to just the shape the shape of the sigil that we'd seen previously in the episode as well
0: well it has that sigil on it correct it looks very close to the sigil that we saw correct
3: yeah yes. the, the shape mm-hmm. of it is very close
0: yeah yeah
3: oh it's yeah it's the it's the sigil of, of sauron for sure
0: yeah, and I I mean that's a big thing in Lord of the Rings, you know, like the white hand of of Sauron and the eye of Sauron and a lot of symbols and things like that that we see throughout Lord of the Rings, like this is another one, you know, even down to um, you know, the knights of Rohan having their own symbols and things like that. So yeah, and Sauron's very known for using
2: those symbols to like influence and take control. I said knights of Rohan, writers of Rohan. Get it right. <laughs> the Knights of Wren making a Lord of Rings appearance <laughs> i
0: don't well I don't want I don't want Carl Urban to come over here and smack me,
2: oh yeah, yeah. No.
0: <laughs> so um, I don't know any final thoughts about Aaron Deere and the the men of the Southlands before we kind of get into like the culminating scene here
3: oh ju- just a lot of elf racism to be found.
0: Very, yeah, I would agree.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed seeing this village and the stark contrast of this village and a lot of the elven villages we'd seen previously in the episode. It, it really like, was such a different like, atmosphere compared to that, and I thought it was very well done.
3: Mm-hmm. And the, the darker music cues down there also are fantastic. It's so ominous.
0: Is Theo being drawn? Is it just child curiosity or is there something pulling theo could some i feel like just like evil forces are definitely at play here with theo and i feel like theo is going to be a character of importance going forward big time a hundred percent it I started with an accident but
2: then i think it definitely became more than an accident i think the drawing definitely already happened right
3: away and and especially paired with this mystery of we don't know who his dad is
0: mm-hmm. we don't know
3: what sort of significance that holds yet
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I, yeah I, i'm i'm leaning me I, it's it's very ring wraithy to me obviously as far as even just oh thinking. shit so um and i kind of want to wait until episode two but i kind of have a theory revolving around some of this stuff but yeah i that's where my kind of thoughts went and Kind of where I'm going to talk about it in episode two.
0: We need to get into episode two here really quick because you guys are just 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 itching. I'm itching to talk about these theories in episode <laughs> two as well. Because I also have theories about episode two. Um let's talk about we see like this star falling from the sky, and every character that we've seen so far sees this star, including some moving trees that look like ants yes yeah yes i clapped for them. <laughs> Same here.
3: i was like are we seeing ant wives? holy shit
0: were you were you looking for treebeard? were we all looking for treebeard?
3: <laughs> i was more captivated by the little miniature ones and then knowing that the antwives have had gone missing years and years before yeah. i was like yeah. are we seeing ant wives here
1: yeah yeah i think we'll get them in the series at some point i think that'd be really cool yeah Oh, that would be great! I would oh, love to would see Treebeard
3: cool. as well because they're already not shy about giving us other characters that are long-lived, that you know will be in the future stories as well. So tre- Treebeard would be a real treat. So yeah, this uh,
0: this this star eventually falls closest to the Harfoots, and and uh, Nori and Poppy stumble upon. The, the crater that's left there And there is this Naked man in fire In this fiery crater And everybody's like Holy shit, who is that? And that's where basically the episode That's where the episode leaves off, if I'm correct Yes, that's the yep. last shot okay. The overhead shot of him in the crater So I think, I think We will end this episode here I do want to make sure that you guys got all all your thoughts. Uh, I think we'll end like the breakdown of this episode here and then we'll jump into more of like that whole story and what kind of like plays out with that in the next episode. But did we leave anything on the table, guys? I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in this first episode that we didn't get out? Uh, No, I don't think so.
1: I think we're good.
2: Yeah, I think we're good.
0: All right. Yeah. Okay. So please uh, we're going to be recording we're immediately we're going to be recording the second episode which will also be up on the feed by the time um that, that that you're hearing this. But I wanted to thank all of us for uh you know getting together to
1: talk about this series that we've been looking forward to. Billy, where can people find you, man? You can find me uh, on the Reality Guys YouTube channel. We cover anything and everything reality TV. So anything from The Challenge, Bachelor, Survivor, Amazing Race, all that kind of fun stuff. um, You can find us on YouTube.
0: Joe, where can people find you when they're not listening to you on the Rings of Power podcast? Hey, you can find me on Startcast. It's a
3: long form conversation show I do. New episodes drop every Saturday. You can also find me on Twitter at the Tubby Ninja. Or if you are into zombie stories, I have a book called I Become Death that is available on Amazon,
0: Audible, and iTunes. I love that Joe plugged his book, man. I'm so proud of yes. you, man.
3: Solid plug. <laughs> I know. I need. I need to do better about that. It's like I'm in front of a microphone every week, and and I rarely mention that, and it just shows what terrible business acumen I have.
0: <laughs> this is a great place to do it, though. You did well. You Thank are the you're the opposite of Jeff Bezos with this show because all I've seen is marketing for this show. <laughs> But uh, yeah, you can find Jake and myself We do a podcast called Pop Culture Leftovers You're probably listening to it on that feed But if you're not, you can also Check out our podcast where we do uh, Weekly reviews on uh, New TV shows and movies And we also do news and Have a huge focus like on Marvel Star Wars and DC projects But we pretty much cover everything uh, But uh, yeah, you can check us out On Pop Culture Leftovers
2: yeah, check it out. It's a great show. We'll be doing uh, the D23 news this week. So if you're also into Marvel as, long as as well as Lord of the Rings, then it's going to be a great episode next week.
0: Yeah, D23 is going to be pretty huge. That is going to be a pretty huge one. So I am looking forward to talking about that. Um, I do want to end the episode with the Horn of Helm Hammerhand. This is how we should end the episodes, gentlemen. Nah, maybe we shouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs)
2: oh man yeah that sounded like me after taco
0: bell all right guys yeah uh make sure to uh listen and and make sure to subscribe if you're not listening on pop culture leftovers make sure to subscribe either to uh to to this feed or subscribe on the pop culture leftovers feed um but uh make sure to uh listen and subscribe every week and we appreciate everybody listening and we will be back for episode number two see ya later y'all
3: Later.